Let's open up to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We have, a, as I mentioned, a big swath of text to cover. And so we're just going to dive right in this morning. We're going to be covering chapter 9 through chapter 10, verse 16. And uh, just to kind of set where we are, if you remember last week in our previous chapter, chapter 8, Samuel is old, and he's uh, got two sons that are kind of corrupt. The elders of Israel are just like, what's going to happen? There's a serious leadership issue here. Um, And they go to Samuel and tell him to appoint for them a king, a king like other nations. Now, this was evil in Samuel's eyes. This was open rebellion in God's eyes because they were rejecting God as king over them. And they, they were wanting to just be like other nations. They looked around and said, we want that, versus looking at Yahweh saying, we want you to guide us and lead us. They were to be a holy people, set apart, not like other nations. And so they were warned that this, what would happen if this if they did this, if they wanted a human king like other nations rather than God as their king, there would be open judgment. They would be slaves. And they were like, we don't care. We, we still want that king. So God told Samuel strangely to obey their voice, to make them a king. And the story ends in chapter 8. He sends everyone home and we're just waiting. Who, who and how will this king be chosen? Now remember, it's not that God did not have a plan for a king in Israel's history and for his redemptive plan for a monarchy, but it just was not going to happen the way people demanded it. It would be by God's design, God's timing, and God's man. But the Lord permitted it to unfold this way. We, We know there was a anointed king to come. Remember Hannah's prayer in chapter 10, or chapter 2, verse 10, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah. So even in misguided, sinful human desires, the Lord, who is king, who rules, and who knows best, is still going to achieve his purposes. No no human is going to thwart his plan of redemption, his good plan and purposes for his glory, and also for the good of his covenant people. So our story today is going to take some various turns, uh, what seems like a bunch of searches that are random and chance, and yet we will see God is, is sovereignly working His good plan. So let me pray for us, and then we will, we will jump in. Lord, I pray this morning, as we come to Your Word, that You would let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Um, we, we, we need your word to, to know who you are. We need your word to know how to worship rightly, who, how to believe uh, truly, Lord. And, and we need your spirit, as we've been reminded already this morning, we need your spirit to open up our eye, the eyes of our heart, to, to hear, to receive, to believe, to know. And so would we, would we encounter you, Jesus, today in your word and that would bring deeper, greater hope for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So here we are, chapter 9. And it begins this way. There was a man. It's a very storybook, isn't it? Like once upon a time. Now if you remember, actually there's this statement just like this in chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man. And we were introduced to Elkanah. 
It's like we're turning a page. Remember this sort of transition from a focus on Samuel to someone else. We, we're in a new chapter. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, and the son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Bekorah, son of Uphayu, Aphia, a, Benjam, a Benjam, Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, and a handsome, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So we're introduced to a man named Kish. Now, there's nothing super important about him beyond this story, but we're told he is wealthy, a, a mighty man, prosperous. He's in this, of this tribe of Benjamin, which is an important connection. Benjamin was the smallest of all the 12 tribes. And following the book of Judges, Benjamin is not really in great light right now. Back in Judges, there is a horrific horrific story that took place in Gibeah, a Benjaminite city. It involved rape, it involved murder, which eventually led to a civil war. It is one of the most grotesque stories in the Bible. And it ended with a battle against the Benjaminites where only 600 men of Benjamin remained. And so there's this, like, this kind of just gross story that just rests from them just out of the book of Judges. And we learn later in chapter 10 that Saul is from Gibeah. So here we have son, Kish. He has a son named Saul. Now, don't you just love these descriptors of him? He is handsome. And there is not one man in all of Israel more handsome than him. I mean, that's, that's astounding. <laughs> and he is taller than any other. I mean, tall, handsome. I mean, these guys make great leaders and great warriors, right? From the outward appearance, he is getting like thumbs up. I mean, this guy needs no Snapchat or Instagram filters. Like this dude has it going on. And then we're presented with a problem. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and rise and go look for donkeys. I mean, this seems very bizarre. Lost donkeys? I mean, we're going from a national crisis, leadership crisis, the elders are crying out for a king. They're trying to dethrone Yahweh and his kingship. And then we have a story of, like, lost donkeys. It just seems a bit odd. Well, Kish sends Saul off on a mission with a young man or a servant to find them. And this is what we read in verse 4. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and passed through the land of Shalesha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of, of Shalem, but they were not there. And they were passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and be anxious about us. Well, it seems like the mission comes to sort of a dead end. I mean, they're going nowhere. They're town to town. No donkeys, no donkeys, no donkeys. Saul's done. He's ready to sort of tap out. He wants to give up on the donkeys, and he's worried about his dad, who's possibly worried about him. 
And then it says they came to this land of Zuf. What, where is this? Where earlier in chapter 1, there was an area named after Samuel's great, great, great grandfather in the region where Samuel's hometown is in Ramah. This is not coincidence, or is it? We read in verse 6, But he, the servant, said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring this man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. And they went to the city where the man of God was. Now, the servant, not Saul, suggests, I know where we are. And I know someone who is in the area. There's this man of God around here. And I know that he, what he says, all that he says comes true. What kind of person does that? All that they say comes true. This is, this is a, a prophet. And just to tip us off and clarify, the narrator sort of breaks out into sort of a parenthetical statement to clarify this man of God and money. In verse 9, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. So Saul and his compadre just happened to be out hunting for lost donkeys, traversing town to town. And the moment that they, well, Saul, was about to give up, they were in Zuf, where there is a man of God. Is this random is this chance? Now, I want us to just pause and kind of back out a little bit and just consider our first impressions of this guy, Saul. Well, he looks good. All the ladies think so. I mean, he must work out. He respects his father. He obeys his father. I mean, this is good, right? This is in contrast to the scoundrel, dishonorable sons that we've been seeing of late. This is, this is very positive. He doesn't want his dad to be anxious. He's considering his dad. He, he doesn't want to just get something for free. He's like, I, I think we should pay this guy if we're going to go to him. That's honorable. Yet there's some things that seem questionable, though, like if, well, some of the first readers would be alarming. Uh, lots of donkeys. I mean, if you're if you're a farmer or a shepherd, it's not a great sign of leadership if you're losing your donkeys. And in the ancient Near East, donkeys were oftentimes associated with kingship. So there's something going on. And Saul is the one to be like, oh, I give up. I'm done. We, we've done all we could. But who's the one that's pushing things forward? The servants, this unnamed young servants like, let's press on. He seems to be setting the pace of the mission, and Saul is sort of following, not really leading. And he doesn't have any money. He, he's the one that's kind of unprepared, and the servant's like, hey, I got cash. I'm going <laughs> to... The servant's the one that seems to be prepared in this moment. And also, he doesn't even know about the local man of God, the prophet of the Lord. 
In chapter 3, verse 20, it says, And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. It's like saying from International Falls to Albert Lee, all of Minnesota knew who this person was. And Saul's like, I don't, I don't, what? Another piece we can consider here is a little nameology. Recall in chapter 1, Hannah asked of the Lord for a son, and God gives or grants this to her. And uh, it says in verse 20, she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And it was several times throughout that chapter, asking, asking, asking was repeated. And there's some debate around the meaning of Samuel's name. We discussed this. Mostly agree it sounds like the Hebrew form of heard from God or God hears, or it could sound like asked for. And Hannah's asking, God heard and God gave. Samuel grows up to be the judge and the prophet, representing the one who hears from God, speaks to the people who should hear from the Lord. And now we come to another interesting connection to this asked. Saul's name is actually a form of the verb to ask, or it could be translated asked for. Israel was asking for a king like other nations in chapter 8, and now we get a guy named asked for. Is this, is this him? And if so, will he be all that Israel desires? So Saul and the servant press on to the city of the unnamed man of God, likely Ramah, and verse 7 it says, And they went up the hill to the city, and they met a young woman coming out to draw, uh, met young women coming out to draw water, and said to them, Is the seer here? Now the the Old Testament, uh, previous to this, there are other stories in Scripture that deal with wells and women. Remember Moses and Jacob and Isaac. And so each of these situations around these wells had significant uh, part of God's redemptive story unfolding. Here we are once again seeing a piece of There's nothing random about what's happening here. Verse 12, and they answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you, hurry, he has just come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. And as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city and they are entering, as they are entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. What timing? What timing? The prophet seer we know now is Samuel. He's offering a sacrifice, which is going to be followed by this meal for certain important folks that are invited. And the timing of all this, the random livestock adventure that started with the lost donkeys, and now Samuel or Saul encountering this seer, but doesn't know really, really who he is. We, we know who he is. But the question here is, does Saul know who Samuel is? And will he help them find their lost donkeys and tell him the way they should go? This is what we read in verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he shall save my people from the land of the Philist hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. 
When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So the story pulls out to this little flashback. The Lord revealed or spoke to Samuel that he would be meet, who he would be meeting that day, a man, and he would anoint this man as a leader to be a prince over Israel. Now, it's interesting that God does not use the word king here, but a term that just simply means leader. The question could be, why, why not the word, Hebrew word for king? It could be that God, God is saying, you know that I'm going to give you a leader, Israel, of your choosing, but he's not going to be the king of my choosing. What will the Lord do through this leader? We see the purpose. Save them, Israel, for he has heard their cry. And we have a reference to the Philistines again, afflicting God's people. And here it seems to be reminiscent of similar to the judges, right? The people would cry out, God would send a rescuer from their enemies. And notice in Verse 16, God calls them my people three times. Israel would get a leader of of what they wanted, like other nations, rejecting God as king, but they will always be God's people. My people, even all their pride and all of their sin, he is their king And they are his beloved people. He is the God of steadfast, covenantal love and mercy. Later, the Lord would call Israel his his heritage, his inheritance in chapter 10. The Lord won't abandon them even in their reckless, foolish decisions. This is a great mercy. Dale Davis, I love this. He says, Israel's rejection does not paralyze Yahweh's providence. Although Yahweh sees Israel's idolatry in her cry for a king, he also hears her distress in her cry for relief. Israel's stupidity cannot wither Yahweh's compassion. No, we must not trivialize Israel's sin, but neither dare we minimize Yahweh's mercy. He's the... Can you just take a moment to think about that for your own heart this morning? Aren't you thankful that even in our failure, our stupidity, maybe trivializing our own sin, that God is merciful? It does not wither His compassion for us or minimize His mercy towards us, but He sees us. And he hears our cry, even in our failings, and says, that's my son. That's my daughter. And I hear their cry, and he moves towards us in grace and mercy. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves wretches like us. So the Lord tells Samuel, that's the man. Then we hear this in verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, Where is the house of the seer? Can this be more awkward? (laughs) Saul, clueless, comes up to Samuel. Hey, do you know where the the seer lives? Looking for the seer. I mean, I can just imagine, like, the look on Samuel's face. Um, I'm the guy. 
I'm the guy. Verse 19, Samuel answers Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? And Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? So Samuel tries to set Saul's mind at ease about the donkeys. Don't worry about them. They've been found long ago. And then he throws at him this very, very startling, probably, statement for him. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Or to who is the desire of Israel? Uh, On whom? And isn't it not for you and for all your father's house? It's interesting that we saw in chapter 8, we know Israel made their desire known. They made their desire known. They desired a king like other nations. And Saul doesn't even seem to be clued in at that reality and that request. And maybe this is out of true humility. Who, who am I? I'm the least of all the clans and and of all the clans, we, uh, of the clan, we are the humblest. What, what, are you, what are you saying? So then we have this interesting evening that uh, sort of unfolds where it's just sort of we're waiting for the answer. Saul, Samuel just leaves them hanging. Verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who have been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came uh, came down from the high places into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. So we have this, this feast that follows a sacrifice. It's possibly the peace offering, and they would have the leg of the sacrifice belonging to the priest, and Saul is, is sharing in this that would be Samuel's. He's benefiting in some sort of priestly work of Samuel in this, note this word, the, this statement, in the hour appointed. Remember, Samuel had this all kind of set up. Remember that? This food I had prepared for you, and now is the time to bring that out. This is who's going to be, benefit from it. Saul, among his elite group, he's sitting there. Uh, Samuel's sitting there with these honored guests, with the prophet of God. This hour, unknown to Saul, yet known and planned by God, and led into by Samuel the prophet. We aren't told really any details about the conversation that had happened. Saul goes to bed. You can imagine him just laying on the roof, looking up into the sky, thinking, what is going on? This is mystery for Saul. Verse 25, and when they came down from the high places into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. And then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul rose, and both he and Samuel went into the street. And when they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, 
Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while. Then he says this, that I may make known to you the word of God. Now, if you're in your Bibles, you probably see a page or a chapter break there. Be, be kind of one of those interesting moments where you just left hanging. What, what is this word of God? What is going to be said? The servant is told to go on away ahead, and Saul is supposed to stay there and hear something. Remember, they wanted all along for the seer to tell them the way, but the donkeys were found. What is What way is are they going to go? Is they, are they going to be sent? And Saul hears from Samuel the word of God. By the sovereign, providential wisdom of the Lord, God had this moment for Saul planned. From missing donkeys to women at the well, Saul was going to hear the word of God. And this is what we read in chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince or leader over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Samuel does as God commanded, as the prophet of the Lord, chapter 9, verse 16, and anoints Saul. This is a very private moment. It's just Saul and Samuel. We're going to see how that becomes more public later, but Saul is anointed, note, to lead his people, God's inheritance, to reign over them and save them from surrounding enemies. And Samuel told him, there should be a sign to you. What, what, what signs? Well, we see three signs now that are going to happen. And these are going to confirm the word of the Lord for Saul that it is true. This is what we see. Verse 2, sign number 1. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelsa. And they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? So, first they'd run into some men, and they would repeat almost the exact same words that Saul spoke about his concern, the missing donkeys and his dad's anxiety. And that's a location is by Rachel's tomb. This was Jacob's wife and Jacob's wife died giving birth to Benjamin. She was a matriarch in Israel. And we, we see there's this connection to the roots of Israel, and it's unfolding to give confirmation in some way to this new kingship that's unfolding. Sign one. Sign two. Verse three. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they shall greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. So three men, they're heading up to worship at Bethel, and they share, this is some, probably some priestly activity that they're, they're, they're involved in, and they will share bread with him, similar to 
Samuel's invitation. Again, Saul is sharing in some sort of priestly holy status in God's service. God's affirmation is going on. And then number three, verse five. And they and after that you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. That's very interesting. And there, as soon as you come into the city, you will be met by a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp and tambourine, flute and lyre before them, prophesying. And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, uh, uh, and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. This is getting very interesting, all of these signs. And we come to a place, to a, a town, which means the hill of God, and right there, right there is a garrison of the Philistines. I mean, that's, that's odd. A Philistine outpost right here where Saul will be in this third sign. And there's going to be a band of prophets right by this sort of fort. And they will be doing their thing. And then when they are, the Spirit is going to, Holy Spirit is going to rush upon Saul and he's going to be changed into a new man. And Samuel charges him after these signs, note this, do what your hand finds to do. God is with you. Afterward, Meet up with me at Gilgal, and, we'll, uh, and we're going to worship. Verse 9, and when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass. The Lord gave Saul a new heart. This is what Samuel said would happen, that he would be turned into another man. What will this mean? What will this change of heart, this new man, mean for Israel? We're sort of left with that question. We don't fully know. So we see in verse 9 this sort of um, summary. All these signs took place. But strangely, we get this expanded version in verse 10. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets, so a fulfillment of this sign, met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, as was prophesied, told of, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. So the Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul. He prophesies, and there's witnesses to this. And the people are stirred up, thinking, who, what, what is going on with this guy? I mean, someone asked, who, who is his dad? Because Kish's sons aren't prophets. This is, this is abnormal. What gives? The stories continued on so that it became this sort of tagline, is Saul among the prophets? It's like, whoa, what, what's happening? God was approving in authorizing and empowering Saul for this task of saving his people. Yet, if we think about what just happened, and then how that verse 13 concludes, when he finished prophesying, he went to the high place. 
It seems there's something absent here. We don't hear of him doing anything that his hands find to do after the Spirit came upon him. Or him going to Gilgal. Now this is implicit, but what appears missing is what Saul should have done. Remember, God heard the cries of his people, and Samuel told that, was told that Saul would save my people from the hand of the Philistines. 9.16. Samuel anointed him and told Saul he would save uh, God's people from the hand of their surrounding enemies. 10.1. And if we're thinking about this following the book of Judges, what would also happen in that book? The Spirit would rush upon someone like Samson, and God would empower that rescuer, and they would immediately go, and they would defeat the Philistines or rescue God's people. Was Saul to do something against this garrison that was right next to them, right there, as we were told? Should we be alarmed by what Samuel or what Saul did not do? Is there a theme that seems to be unfolding here that connects to some earlier observations of reluctance, of passivity, of him being led around by his young servant versus him engaging and initiating? Then we read in verse 14 what Saul did not share as he returned. Now Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to see the donkeys. And we saw that they were not to be found, and we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. (laughs) But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. And this seems so nonchalant. Uh, We lost the donkey, so we went and talked to Samuel. And it seems very clear that Saul's uncle really knows who Samuel is. Well, what did he say? You you spoke to the prophet of God who's known over all Israel? Oh, just the donkeys were okay. (laughs) That's it? What about the meal? What about the anointing? What about the reigning? What about the saving of Israel? What about the prophesying? But of the matter of the kingdom, the matter of the kingdom was not spoken of. And this is the first time we see a reference of king or kingship or the kingdom since chapter 8, since Israel demanded a king like other nations. And this is how our story concludes. It seems weird, lost donkeys and the tribe of Benjamin, just following the record in Judges and all these other intricate pieces and being lost and just... It seems like there's mystery around all of this. And one of the things we should take away from this story is that God is at work in every bit of it. Verses 15 and 17, I think, are really helpful clues to help us understand. Now, the day before, God spoke. God had already been speaking to the prophet about all of this. God's hand, his His work was was all infused in every one of these things that looked like chance and randomness. And it was the Lord working His providential hand, His mercy, despite Israel's sin. 
I think one of the things we can really take away is behind all things, God's sovereign hand is working using unlikely people, everyday situations to move forward His plan and to ultimately provide His anointed King to save His people. Even as Israel was rejecting God as King, the Lord is mercifully hearing their cries, working on their behalf, raising up a Savior to rescue them. But sometimes it can be very subtle. Sometimes it can be very mysterious and unclear. One of the things that we need to take away of God's truth and His kingdom is, is God's king and God's people must be under God's word. And for here, it is God working in and through the prophet. God's king should follow the word. God's king needs to be under the prophetic word, the word of God. God's king must be always looking to, always submitted to, always looking to Yahweh and His Word. And all of this is being affirmed in this situation for Saul. The prophetic signs. All of this should be tutoring for him that no matter what happens, what you think are random situations or chance or out of control, Yahweh is in control. Saul needed to be reminded of this. You, Saul, are not in control, no matter how gifted you are, how tall or powerful you are. God, God is king. He is sovereign. And this sovereignty leads to another point, I think, that we can draw from our text of God's providence. It's been noted by commentators how sort of we've noted the cluelessness of everyone in this chapter, aside from Samuel. The servant is unsure. The, the servant gets dismissed during the anointing. He says, no, what's going on? People hearing of, of Saul prophesying, and they're confused. Why him? I mean, you can imagine people maybe at that meal with, with Saul up on that, you know, uh, you know eating with, with all the important people. This is like, what is going on? And, and we have his uncle who doesn't know anything as well. And at the end, we have this tight-lipped Saul who, who seems unsure as well. And then we have all these characters that are in our text, the butcher and the ladies at the well and the guys walking carrying goats. And um, there's all of these very interesting characters through our story. So, yet all the knowing, all the unknowns, and yet all of these whoevers, each, play, each is a player in the story of God and has purpose. They're agents for His his glorious story unfolding on the earth. And all of these things that seem random are all God's hand at work. Not one person is unimportant, and nor is any step not part of God's good plan. All part of the Lord's plan and His redemptive purposes. This is, this is God's providence. We don't use that word a lot in our everyday vocabulary, providence. What is What is providence? Uh, J.I. Packer defines providence like this. The doctrine or the belief of providence teaches Christians that they are never in the grip of blind forces. Fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned. And each event comes as a new summons to trust, to obey and rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. He would go on to say that his hand may be hidden, 
but his rule is absolute. His divine plan, always working, nothing is faith, nothing is chance, but working on behalf of his people, spiritual and eternal good. This is true in God's redemptive story. And the, the most amazing picture of his providential work that seemed at times like mystery was his son, Jesus Christ. I mean, folks in that moment in the Gospels would ask similar questions. Can anything, can anything good come out of that, that nobody town of Galilee? Who is, this, who is this guy? Yet Jesus, Jesus came as the one who would fulfill and complete God's redemptive plans as a king, the Son of God. And at his baptism, in the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit descended upon him and empowered him for his mission, the anointed Messiah who lived under God's word, who spoke the word, under the word, but also as the perfect prophet of God speaking the word. And what is amazing is that anointing, that appointing by the Spirit, Jesus used that for the glorious plan. All that God designed for his hand to be put to, he faithfully did. Acts 10.38 says, And God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus accomplished by his hands all that he was destined to do. And the kingdom Saul was hesitant to speak of, Jesus was, was out of the gate preaching of his kingdom that had come fulfilled in him. So that all who would look to him and trust in him would know his salvation. So we, as God's people, are to be humbly looking to and under his word as we submit to Christ Jesus, the good king, the faithful anointed king. I just was thinking about this, this concept of providence. Just, it was good for my soul. And I, I want to encourage you to think about providence for a moment. We, we're, we're in control of a lot of our life, so we think. And it's so easy just to open up Google Maps and the pen is right there and all the world orientates around my pen. And we, we get to rest in the fact that God is the one whom all things orientate and he dictates. And all that he does is always for our spiritual and eternal good. That is his providence. There's nothing random. There's no fortune or chance or luck, but he's, he's working as a good king all of his plans. Maybe you feel like Saul and his servant just is like, you know, wandering lost to this town, to that town, that town, and we just don't know what to do. We don't know where we're going. We, we have a God who knows and who's leading us and who's guiding us. And if we just look back, we think about, God, what all have you have saved me from? What have you rescued me from? The sins God has cleansed and rescued me from. The destruction of the path that if I kept on, but his sovereign hand came and thwarted and directed me into a better way. The relationships he freed us from. The traps that maybe you don't even know you would have fell in. But God has been kind and gracious to keep you from the things we didn't see, but the things that he is lovingly and graciously guiding us in. 
Saints, our life is not randomness. He is leading us. He is guiding us. And as we look to his word, as we, we look to Christ, the one who, who helps us see clearly, we find rest and confidence rather than anxiety or lostness, but peace in his good work. No randomness, no, no players in his redemptive story that have no purpose. That includes each and every one of his beloved people. That's each and every one of you. God's authoring a story that he knows, he hears our cries, and he works on our behalf, his beloved people. I just want to end with Ephesians chapter 1, which I believe just captures the beauty of God's redemptive plan from before that he works to come down into our life. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things in earth. Praise God, saints. There's no randomness to his mysterious will that he has now been made known to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you that, thank you that we can rest and, conf, and be confident that, Lord, your providential working that we see here in 1 Samuel to bring Saul and, Lord, we know eventually to bring the true anointed king, Jesus. All of that was your design and your plan. And God, we, we sit here this morning and we are recipients of all that good plan that you have worked on our behalf because you see and you have loved us and you have heard our cries. And in that, you have rescued us. And you've brought us into your kingdom. Lord, I, I pray for, for hearts today where maybe there's a sense of things are just upside down and there's a question of why. Lord, may, may our hearts know a rest and a confidence that whatever is going on, Lord, you see and you know and you're good. And that, that purpose and plan is, is possibly unknown, is unknown to us as often is unknown to us, but Lord, we, we can rest in you. So I pray your, your peace would be a rest for hearts this morning and that we would have glad hearts knowing that you have, have worked all of that in Jesus for us so that we may know you and love you. Amen.